On episode 236, I'm interviewing Ray Pointer, SMR council member and founder of New MR. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by HubUX. HubUX is a productivity tool for qualitative research. It creates a seamless workflow across your tools and team. Originally came up with the idea as I was listening to research professionals in both the quant and qual space complain about and, the, and articulate the pain, I guess more succinctly, around managing qualitative research. The one big problem with qualitative is it's synchronous in nature, and it requires 100% of the attention of the respondent. This creates a big barrier and, I believe, a tremendous opportunity inside of the marketplace. So what we do is we take the tools that you use, we integrate them into a workflow so that ultimately you enter in your project details, that is who it is that you want to talk to and when you want to talk to them, whether it's a focus group in person or virtual or IDIs or ethnos. And we connect you to those right people in the times that you want to have those conversations or connections. Push button qualitative insights. Hub UX, if you have any questions, reach out to me directly. I would appreciate it. Jamin at hubux.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Ray Pointer, SMR council member and founder of New MR. Founded in May 2010, New MR organizes online events and the LinkedIn New MR group. New MR is managed by Ray Pointer and research strategist and chief curator Sue York. Ray has spent the last 40 years at the intersection of research, innovation, and business, having been involved in the development of CAPI, online systems, online surveys, and social media research. Ray, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You are an industry sage, is how I would is how I'd cat, cast you, right? I mean, anytime I see you pop up on my LinkedIn feed, I always, you know, click on it, read it, whatever, digest it. And, and, you know, you're prolific in terms of your visibility in the marketplace. I'm really interested. Tell us about the, the young Ray. Like, uh, where did you grow up? What did your parents do? How that, how's that impacted your career? So I'm from Nottingham in the United Kingdom. Um, and I grew up in a mining village. My father worked at the local coal mine. He was first a lorry driver, then later a manual worker on the surface. My mother, by the time that uh, I was born, was a full-time mother and a part-time cleaner. And so that's that's where I hail from in the UK. I love the humble beginnings aspect of that. I, I You know, it's interesting, like the juxtaposition, because you know, SMR Council is for at least from a branch perspective is like is fancy right i mean it's the ones that are you're the the face of the industry to the uh, governance of the world what lessons did you learn you know growing up with in that environment that you now have applied and, and helped you help propel your career i guess the most important one is that most people are not like market researchers <laughs> so in the uk Amongst younger people, nearly half go to university. So we need to remember that across the whole country, the majority don't, if we take the older groups. 
the vast majority do not look at advertising and marketing and think the way we think about things. So coming from a background and a culture where most people did not go to university, I think three people in my class at high school went to university, just is a, it's a useful reminder that there are lots and lots of different things. And it's one of the reasons why you need market research. You can't understand people if you start thinking they're like you. One of the things that I found interesting when I started learning about sampling is that uh, about 30% of the U.S. population lives in 90% of the land. And it really put a finer point on where we need to do make sure that we have representative samples. If we have all of our sample from coming from a specific geography or a large proportion, then we could be missing out on a meaningful uh, point of view because there's massive differences, both psychologically, right? So the way that they view the world from their upbringing perspective, and then, you know, also uh, socioeconomically. And that has such a big impact on whether it's new product adoption or ad resonance or or what have you. I think this is a really important point that it's easy to kind of get into our silos when you think about like market research focus group locations and forget about the, I'll call it the common man. Yeah, Main Street or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Absolutely. What is the biggest challenge that you've overcome either personally or professionally? Well, actually, it is related to that issue, and it was understanding that other people are not necessarily the same as me. So as an employer or as a team leader, in my early years, I would create environments that I would have wanted if I were them. Hmm. And for some of them, that really was quite distressing. So I would change the layout of the office two to three times a year because people like change. No, Ray likes change. Interesting. People generally don't. <laughs> and it was applying my research skills to the people around me as opposed to just when I was being paid to use them that really was quite a, a breakthrough. How long did that take? I mean, that, right, that isn't an overnight discovery. No, no. I, as the people who have ever been in my teams would attest, I'd been to my 30s before I really got a hold of that. You know, I wonder, so the 30s are this interesting point in a lot of people that I've interviewed career where it, it almost is a, it's a decade of, and I'm, you know, this is broadly speaking, it feels like it's a decade of self-discovery. Uh, and then, you know, that tends to be the point of inflection where their, their careers move up uh, directly, directly after that. The thing that I've seen is the people that decide not to develop the self-awareness oftentimes will wind up all, all the time will wind up doing it at their own expense long term but it can be a going through that process actually it can be a really mm, uncomfortable situation <laughs> at least from my vantage point i realized that when i first did the you remember you know uber conference they provide a percentage of time a speaker speaks yeah and i did that at the um I don't know, for like six months, I just started analyzing how much time I was speaking. And um, I worked co uh, consciously on decreasing that amount of time to be 40% was my goal, which was a big epic challenge for me. And still is, which is why I'm still talking. Okay. So tell yes. me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the research project that you're most proud of. Well, this is kind of a curious one. I, I don't use the word proud. Um, blame it on my Methodist upbringing. I, huh. I lost my faith um, in my teens, but I've kept most of the habits. 
So sort of a distrust of gambling and alcohol and an avoidance of the word proud being in that. So let's, let's think about pleased. Most times I'm most pleased with the project I have just done. I'm most looking forward to my next one. So characteristics, if it's solved a problem, so I'm quite often these days, if I'm brought in on a project, it's because the project has gone wrong. I don't do normal projects where they're set up. People contact me and say, Ray, this has gone adrift. Can you come and help us? And when you can do that, and I'm just doing one at the moment, which was a, a really nice piece of work by an agency for a, a large international company, but they'd got some crossed wires between them and they just needed to put a few things straight and then that unfolds and that when you see it coming together that that's fantastic or when you discover something that the client didn't know and that you've got this new facet so i can remember one many many years ago so i can talk about it now project for whirlpool in europe and we did a multi-country conjoint study of the white goods market and we identified that what they thought was the structure wasn't the structure and what they needed to do was this and, and that was really useful and i should add it's only really pleasing when they accept your advice i can think of a project for a candy manufacturer where we found out something that was really useful we were able to give them a warning if you do this the product will fail they ignored it they did it the product failed and they've never asked me for advice again <laughs> Oh, that's funny. How do you, what kind of tips do you, could you give our audience on how you can help the client turn their insights into action? Find out what the business problem is. We, we focus too much on the research problem and you can answer the research problem without helping the business. So if you've been told, can you test these three ads, find out why they want to test and what action are they thinking of taking when they've got the results why are they testing them now and not previously or later why are there three and not more how do they think these ads are going to perform with whom are they going to be successful so the more you can find out about what the stakeholders further up the chain further up from the insight manager really need to do then you can help them more. Now, when, sometimes when you do that, you end up telling them, you know what, I don't think you need this research because actually either way you're going to have to do this or either way it isn't going to work or we've done something similar before and we can show you what the likely outcomes are. So the more you understand, the more likely it is that you will be able to give advice that results in action as opposed to describing the data that you've collected. So, you know, I started my career in the 90s, mid-90s. Do you feel like there's been a trend of moving more towards, like, actual discover, intent of discovery and actionability in research as, a pro, as opposed to, you know, maybe a few decades ago, it seemed, from my vantage point, I'm not casting it across uh, the world, uh, it seemed to be a little bit more about just, you know, supporting an existing decision that had already been made? Um, no, I mean, I go back to the 70s and quite often then you would have massive discovery because new products, new categories. I remember when the cooking saucers were launched and one of the brands in the UK spent more on advertising than the sector took in revenue because it was all about can we create 
a sector which is fundamentally different and they were able to and they used research to plot their way through that process and and guided um, things that were going on there was a difference in how research was done then to how it's done now and more decisions probably had to be made without research it was more expensive and it was more time consuming um, and it took longer time in, in terms of elapsed so somebody would write you a letter saying can we have a meeting and you would write back and say yes how about this date because we didn't all have telephones on every desk you had telephones in every office but certainly not on every desk and then you would start to arrange the meeting and you'd find out they wanted to test something and then you would agree a price and then you would start um, printing questionnaires and posting questionnaires around the country and that elapsed time allowed you to get a much broader understanding of the context for the research. So I think that there has probably always been a mix of validation research, discovery research, um, innovation research. People like uh, Peter Cooper, who was such an innovator in qualitative research into the 90s, you'd go for Wendy Gordon, Colleen Ryan, enormously important qualitative researchers who were doing fantastic discovery about what do people want, what are the real motivations and the drivers. Um, things like need states were developed in the 90s as a method of understanding people. So I think we've always had that mix. What one is exposed to in any particular period of time changes, but the whole industry has got most of this going on somewhere. So, that, I mean, that's actually really interesting when you think about the speed of discovery that's happening or the speed of insight right now. I and mean, we've gone from, you know, again, it, it, my framework is the 90s. So, like, so CADI and uh, InMall Intercepts were the primary two data collection yeah. methods that we used. And so, you know, in that, in that framework, a project would take at the fastest scenario would be mm, three weeks, maybe six, three to six weeks. It's pretty normal for, yeah. you know, ad hoc research. And now it's gone down to, you know, literally days. Zappy is a great example of, I think, hours, right? Yeah. Like, how is that changing the decision-making process? Does it mean that the researcher is subsequently just being cut out more and more from the decision-making process and the integration into, the, into that decision-making process? Or do you think it's maybe they're still involved in that for the important stuff, but the, the internal brand manager or whoever is commissioning, you know, conducting the research at, at speed is doing sheer volumes more? There is certainly sheer volumes more. There are some, some interesting patterns around that. When I talk to insight managers who are pretty comfortable at their future, uh, which is not all of them by any means, they are mostly switching from being order takers to being planners. So they're going around the business saying, we think you need to look at this. We think we've got an answer to your problem. I don't have a problem. You do. Let me tell you what the problem is, and, and then I'll tell you what the answer is. So there's that sort of pro-action going on with client-side insight managers in the best organizations. The shift from order takers to, to planners. Along with that, there is the facilitation of really quick answers. We need to know how many people drink cappuccinos in the afternoon in the major metropolitan areas. You don't want to wait a week for that. Ideally, you Google it and you find out whether that information already exists or you use your knowledge handle your information system and if you don't then you want some way 
of getting that answer quickly. And you don't care whether that is a piece of data analytics, whether that's a, like a super fast survey, whatever it is, providing it provides a, a, a sensible answer to the process. And then the next step is to, is to use that speed and those lower costs to allow iterative development. So rather than telling somebody to develop an ad or develop a concept, and at the end of it, we will tell you pass or fail, we will sit alongside you as you go through, allow you to test more ideas quickly so you can keep changing the product through to something that's actually going to fly and is, is going to win. So we can reduce the risk of failure by working alongside people all the way through. And that sort of iterative process is growing. And the other thing which is happening, and it's most obvious where people are using um, online insight communities, is that every single project is fast. But if you're working with the same team of researchers and client success managers for year after year, they start to really understand your business. And you can go back to this uh, community of people and ask additional short questions and then build those answers back into the bigger picture. So the way that we gather the information is increasingly between the projects, not during the project. I really like this point that you're making. I think it's it's vital that we as research researchers understand this. And the other part that supports the methodology is a human being just can't take 15 minutes of solid focus on on completing a project. It's it's really really hard to get that kind of attention in, in context of a survey. I do think it works in you know video based IDIs that that's that sort of thing. But um, the the benefit of touching people over time and then building out that respondent record, uh, almost creating a longitudinal point of view on on the human, it it, it definitely turns that one off into an ongoing asset uh, for further leverageability. Are you seeing companies? Are you seeing companies leverage technology like combining uh, community management and? Uh, knowledge management platforms like like KnowledgeHound, is that becoming part of the arsenal of the internal brand researcher? It, it is. It, it's, it's coming in. It's still got quite a way to go. So more data goes into the system than comes out. And so there is there is more work to do. There's, you know, there's some wonderful things that Infotools are doing. KnowledgeHound is another good example. There are plenty of platforms out there. We are going to see, I think, some good developments in those over the next few years so that your first port of call will be to ask, do we already know the answers to that? And if we don't, what additional thing do we need to know? Because it's unlikely that we're going to need to know a full survey's worth because we should already know quite a bit about that. Yeah, data visibility and accessibility across the organization is probably one of the biggest problems that we have because data really is not uh, a renewable resource inside of the organization. It's it's you know largely treated as a one-off. Yeah. The big problem with it is that every platform, and there's according to Lenny Murphy over 600 now, has its own data schema. So we don't have you know we don't have the common language across research platforms to you know data collection platforms to um, and I'm including Qual and Quant there by the way. 
yeah you know to systematically know that this question is a gender question for example or age or diagnostic yeah do you think that's one of the big white spaces that exists in the space it is and it's not just in the research space so tim berners lee semantic web he thought that was going to be the next big breakthrough because it would make the the web so much more useful if if every piece of data told you what it was the difficulty is where it would have required people who are putting the data in to describe it for the benefit of people later on who would use it which is a bit like we uh, timesheets mm. requires the people putting the data in to do it for the benefit of other people who will use the information. And of course, it didn't happen. So what we're beginning to see are AI tools that are being used for the tagging and the coding and that will make sense of that data. But we will need to see market researchers move away from their preferred data structures. Our preferred data structures tend to be rectangles, tables of data. And if you look at the way the world is changing, it's mostly JSON. It's to do with strings of information where you have a lot of information from one person, not very much from another, and it's lots of different things. So we're going to have some interesting work probably over the next 20 to 30 years in creating structure that unifies unstructured information and then uses appropriate analytical techniques because once you get near the marketing scientists they try to cram the data back into their rectangles of data where everybody's answered the same questions on the same format and it's just not going to be available in that format that's a really and it's fascinating when you think of it like that especially with the the time frame that you've created which is pretty long but you know you're seeing it now with nlp machine learning, su supporting the structure of unstructured data, helping with social listening, for example. One of the things that you've done is made a, come out pretty strongly with respect to uh, surveys decreasing from a methodology perspective uh, relative to global market research turnover. And then at the same time, qualitative increasing. How have you seen that play out over the last, what it's been, uh, I guess, four-ish years? Probably slightly more. The decline in surveys has been a little bit slower than I thought it would be. Um, it's been a, quite a clear decline, but it's been slower. And I think that is because the panel companies have done an awesome good job at driving down price, driving up the flexibility, the speed, the convenience, the targetability, um, and so on. So surveys are what you do when there isn't a better option, a better, faster, cheaper option. And so their decline is because other things are coming in. Now, the most obvious one is the, the passive data that is, has come through really, really strongly. Where we want to know what did you watch and when did you watch it and all of that sort of thing, and where did you travel and how many journeys have you had, that is increasingly being collected with passive information, as it should be. We're seeing all sorts of quite interesting things with facial recognition where poster boards are looking at people as they pass them to see how many people look at the poster board. Because in the old world, we do a survey to say, did you notice that poster board? Well, it's, it's not a great methodology. You're going to give that methodology up as soon as you've got a better alternative. 
So that's the survey side. The qual side is really interesting. Initially, it was a hypothesis, but we're seeing this come about. Qual has traditionally been about 15% of all market research spend. But if you look at the people who fill in the GRIT survey, who are not a representative sample of the industry, they tend to be at the front end of the industry. They have a much bigger proportion of their time being devoted to qual. If you go to a data analytics conference, you will find an amazing amount of the conversation is around this understanding qualitative issue. Because the more data you have about what people do, the more you scratch your head and you say, why? <laughs> why on earth are they doing that? They are buying electric cars and then they're not using them very much so the car is depreciating. They'd be better off doing this. They're financially looking after this, but they're not looking after that. Why? How would we create that message? And for that, you need qualitative tools. So I saw a fantastic presentation in SMR APAC last week in Macau. And a British researcher, Crawford Hollingwood, had been working with the Australians because every time there's a big typhoon or something, there's an outpouring of sympathy and lots of wonderful people send tangible things, beds, tents, buckets, teddy bears. And the problem with that is they clog the airports. They then have to be contained. Somebody has to pay to put them into containers and then they usually end up in landfill. So the question was, how do you pursue? And they, they've got lots of data about who did it and why they did it and so on. But to understand how to create a message that was going to say, send cash, not stuff, they needed to use qualitative research and behavioral economics to, in, to get that insight. So the data told them what the problem was. The data told them what triggered the problem, how to recognize the problem. And that was relatively inexpensive and relatively straightforward. But what was more, it would have been more expensive, but I think there was a lot of pro bono in it. More difficult was the qualitative assessment. And so we will see good qualitative, we will see semiotics and ethnography and this real understanding develop. And I was talking to someone recently about what is the AI analysis of video going to do for qualitative researchers? And I say it's going to be fantastic because what will happen is you will get thousands of hours of video and you will ask the AI, okay, I want you to do some unsupervised topic modeling to find out the main types of breakfast eating situations that exist. Okay, boss, I've done that. Right, okay, now I want you to show me some clips which are absolutely typical of each of those, and I will then work out what they mean, because that's the division of labor between the machine and the human. When we're seeing this emerge right now, it's I've, uh, I'll be at the Insights Association's next conference in Chicago in a few weeks. And one of the speakers that I've recently interviewed actually talked about this issue. You know, AI-empowered insights, actually, it's kind of like the Google algorithm, right? Where it can start self-reinforcing bad behavior, uh, which is part of, fortunately, it's part of the dialogue now as it re relates with machine learning, thinking about like, you know, what's important and what you should show yeah. to what, what insight should be taken out. Um, of a vast amount of data based on user behaviors. In the Google example, it's obviously uh, clicks, right? And so uh, in 
there's a famous white paper that was done where it illustrated that there was a clear bias towards men CEOs uh, versus women CEOs. So anyways, and it was just a function of, you know, that algorithm reinforcing what user behavior was illustrating as important uh, as opposed to what actually is, you know, important, which is truth. You know, anyway, so yeah, I think it's a, I think this is a very fascinating point of view. What do you think, besides AI and machine learning, do you think there's, like, how is voice moving going to play in the market? When I think about voice, I actually mean uh, Alexa and, and Google Home. I think there are probably a few unknowns. The first one is, are people going to get freaked out? Is it listening to stuff that it shouldn't be listening to? So that, that has got to be reconciled. The the really nice use that one could envisage of it, if we get all the trust in place, is a question about, so when I go to bed, I say, hey, Google, turn off the lights. And it's just actually turned on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's awesome. Um, and now it will know what time I go to bed normally. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have a voice-activated question in there that says, and I've signed up to have a certain number of these in, in return for some sort of benefit. Why are you up later today? Or why, why are we turning the lights out earlier today? Or it, my, my temperature control is connected to my Internet of Things, um, so is the carbon monoxide and things. So we can, add, we, we can envisage putting in really single, simple questions like that. Not too many per person. You know, I would probably be tolerant of a question most days, but I wouldn't want to get several questions each day like, did you have a cappuccino today, Ray? And if so, where did you get it from? But those questions are going to be super short. So they will have to be part of a program of collecting data from people multiple through their devices, through some surveys, through some voice activation. So it is going to probably only be a small part of the existing mix. I know that some people think surveys are going to be voice activated. That only works for, we have an English expression called Billy No Mates. Um, which is somebody who is on their own. So if you're in a family setting, you are not going to sit there and talk to Google Home and answer a four-minute survey. You're not going to do it necessarily when you're watching TV. Yes, you might do it when you're eating. So it's going to be a marginal piece. We'll probably see it as an option. Where I have seen it produce something that's quite interesting is where you are looking for open-ended text, getting people to speak it into the right sort of device at the right sort of time gives you more and quite interesting text. But the right time is not when you're on the train. Uh, if you look at the time of day when most surveys are completed, they're completed during the work, working day. People are cyber loafing. So, that is not amenable to voice data collection. So it's going to be a useful addition. I don't think it's going to be a mainstream game changer. It's interesting how, as you're casting it, it, it really becomes a part of this whole micro survey or data collection 
point of view where you're building out that respondent record because done in in context of a one-off is a lot less interesting in context of you know a thousand data points and this is just a few more that we're appending to that particular respondent record that's right i mean if you imagine you get a compliant person who's happy to take part in this and every time they listen they leave a restaurant they get a beep and they speak into their phone very quickly yeah, I'd give that a five out of seven. The food was good, but the service was lousy. And you build that up over time so that you find out, okay, this guy always says the service was lousy. So that's pretty irrelevant to how we get to the advice we're going to give the management. But this bit was, was really good. I mean, that's really interesting. One of the things that we, we tend to get wrong when we oversimplify quant research is that everybody's opinion is equally valuable. Mm -hmm. But actually, think about when you look at TripAdvisor and you see somebody has been really negative. You have a look at a couple of other places they've reviewed to see whether they're just a negative person or are they normally positive and they thought this was really bad, in which case that's a really strong warning. And I will often say to people when they're looking at customer satisfaction data, if you've got somebody that thinks you are terrible at everything, ignore that data pretty much because you can't learn from it. You want people that say, this was okay, this was okay, that was terrible, and that was terrible. Because now you've got something you can work with because you can conceivably make those happy people by getting it right. People who think everything is terrible, you are not going to make happy. And what's more, you're going to spend money on something that nearly everybody else thinks is okay. I mean, you're circling around the same point. It, and it, a lot of data privacy actually becomes a big part of that, right? So when you think about, like, I've said this on the on the podcast numerous times, so I apologize, but you were still asking gender in uh, surveys and, and uh, on some anecdotal research that I've done. When a respondent qualifies for a survey, they've probably been asked gender six times in that one instance because they'll get screened out or over quota, whatever, and then they'll, you know, again, they'll get shown a set of uh, screening questions, so on and so forth. And really what you're talking about is that longitudinal point of view with the respondent. How does data privacy, you know, GDRP, start playing into that? Is it then become limited to controlled communities? Or do you think we'll be able to have a broader point of view on um, at the respondent level through companies like, you know, Dynata? I think there's a fascinating battle to be had about whether we get to see it through companies like Dynata, whether we get to see it through um, companies like the, the banks leveraging their mm. information. Interesting. Uh, or do we get to see it through databases accumulated by clients? So will Procter & Gamble, so Unilever, for example, want to have a connection, a digital connection with 1 billion, that's B for Bertie, 1 billion of their customers. So that is one heck of a walled garden. And every one of those 1 billion will have their privacy settings. And some of them will be set so, yeah, you can use all of my data, but I want 1% off the price of the stuff I buy through to people who are totally locked down and sharing almost nothing. So it is going to be about asking additional questions. And that is why it's so important for the donators. It's why it's so important for the 
experience and people like this who hold data um, the credit card companies the retailers all want to turn their data into an asset um, they're trying to work together in collectives and then companies are trying to create those so today's online community is typically 5,000 to 50,000 people and it's used exclusively for market research in the future it's for a big brand it's more likely to be a million to five million to a hundred million people and it will be used for all the communication purposes of the organization not just for research and you see so you're seeing this like venn diagram of of marketing research converging into marketing right or even brand so at a, at a big b level um that and that's something that i think you know, I did some, some research for Intuit a long time ago, uh, and it was basically just a count of how many times each person in their database had been solicited for research. It was remarkable, the volume, because Intuit being a, a consumer-centric organization, you know, they were hitting their people a lot for yes. ad hoc research. And I mean, there was one guy that in a week, I think it was 16 times he had been solicited for research um, by all the disparate you know, stakeholders within the company. He was just checking all the boxes, I guess. Yep. You know, the, and so all of a sudden, it be, you know, you as a brand need to become very cognizant of the uh, mechanisms or the experience that you're creating through the research to the end consumer because that has an overarching. You know, he was being contacted more for research than he was for you know upgrade or buy or whatever, right? So yep. uh, the value piece wasn't necessarily there. And I mean, Scott Miller up at Vision Critical has spoken quite eloquently on this. So many of these, as he calls them, spam surveys, are you're not sending these out to the general public, you're sending them to your customers. They are part of the customer experience. And if they are not good, they're a very negative part of the customer experience. When you think about market research today, and you're exposed to most tech and then also, you know, at an SMR council member uh, level and then you know from your brand exposure what do you see as the biggest issue that we are facing as an industry i think the difficulty of knowing whether research is good research or not has been growing and probably underlying that is is the decline in in rigor so we we've got a lot of things out there like facial coding which has very little good validation and may or may not work. Now, if it works, it's fantastic. And maybe it works in some circumstances. We, we saw an attempt in the early days of neuroscience, the ARF did some side-by-side -side research, but there hasn't been much since that. Some of the biometrics where people are looking at galvanic, galvanic skin response, well, if you show me a baby playing around with a razor blade, you are going to get a psychophysical response that's really straightforward to measure. But if you show me a slightly different color for the floor detergent, you'll be lucky if you're going to get a physical response, even if you are generating a response that's big enough for me to buy, make a purchase choice that's differently. So I think we need a lot more um, rigor in that process but I'm not sure anybody has is brave enough to do it. I don't think the Insights Association or SMR or any of these bodies are going to come in and say, this piece of research from company A, phew, it's rubbish. 
we'd suggest you don't buy it. And it's really hard now for clients because people are coming along and they're saying Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman recommended this or Daniel Prize winner Nick McFadden generated this type of conjoint analysis. And it's really hard for clients to know what the true value of that is. And things are moving so fast that it's it's going to get more and more difficult. I've had a couple of people reach out, reach out to me, one just yesterday, interested in moving careers, so jumping into market research. If you were interested, you know, kind of rewind the clock in context of today uh, in entering into market research slash user experience, what would you do in order to bridge that gap? The, the problem that this individual was, like she didn't have direct primary research experience that she could point to, which, you know, just basically opted her out, even though she did have a clear desire and, and interest in the, in, the, uh, in the category. So if you're, I mean, you, you want to find a place where your skill is relevant. So if you were a linguist, you would use that as your entry point. Use a, or find an area like customer success management which doesn't require a research background, but does require a background in working with clients and developing markets and so on. You might find that usability testing was a relatively straightforward point. If you're a data scientist, then you'd come in through the data science route. So you want to find out what is your strength, because when you're in the industry, the phrase that's become fashionable over the last few years is the T-shaped employee. So the most important thing about being a T-shaped employee is having that speciality, the stick that sticks out. Once you've got your feet under the table, you then want to make sure that you've got the regular skills, the, the flat part of the T, so you know about the research industry, you know what qual adds to the picture, you know why we uh, don't ask leading questions, how to recognise bias data and things like that. But you want to come in via your speciality. Yeah, that that's interesting. Do you see the role of social media like LinkedIn, etc., playing a material point a part in that transition? In other words, do you think somebody could start blogging on that platform and then connecting so, so at a, almost a very tactical level, leveraging whatever sort of overlap their existing uh, talent may have with market research and then trying to really overreach, but not in an inappropriate way? Um, uh, I. I I have seen individuals do it. Uh, most people who try it can't actually keep up that level of material. Um, it's hard work for most people to generate a lot of social media presence. It's a, a little bit like keeping a diary. Lots of people want to keep a diary, but they can't. Lots of people thought they were going to blog, but they didn't. And it, it's similar to do that. So I have seen people who have helped move careers, helped develop, become more aware. It may not be the easiest way unless you are a, a native to social media, that it's where you want to be. So it is a possible route, but I wouldn't think it's the easiest. My first blog, I had one. Uh, post. I'm going to, I can't think it was like I was going to commit to a weekly post. And then six months later was my second post. Sorry, I haven't posted in a long time. Yeah. Uh, it was just really, I perfectly described as you did. It's a, it is a, it is a major commitment. But one of the things that we're seeing is 
you know, with, within the LinkedIn platform itself, it's almost like there's this mix of Facebook content getting intermingled with business related content. Are you, are you seeing that on your feed or is it just u- unique to the people that I'm, that I'm following? I actually don't see much of it in my feed. I see people complaining about it in my feed, but I don't really see much of the the puppies and here is me running up a mountain and here is the, the celebration of my anniversary. Um, yeah. Right. And I, and I, and even from, I, cause I have a Facebook feed and I can see some, some really important things in people's lives happening in Facebook. And I'm connected with the same people in LinkedIn and what they are talking about in LinkedIn is different. So whether the algorithm is working better for me, whether my cross section is different, I'm not sure. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's gosh. I tell you, it would be nice to see behind the curtain in terms of how it prioritizes what it is that we're seeing. And if we could help like inform that content, but anyway, that's another subject. How do you see the role of social media playing at a corporate level in order to advance the, um, the companies? And I'm talking about market research companies in this case, uh, their individual agendas. How's that going to, how's that going to evolve over the next couple of years? Where should they be paying it? What should they be paying attention to? It should be part of their broad strategy. So there are two things that you want to do with your brand image. If you're a market research company, then you want to establish your the right image with clients. And you want to establish the right image with current and future employees. So part of what you're doing the social media for is to get the right sort of people to apply for people to want to work for you and for people who do work for you to understand what your mission is. Because most people who work for a medium to large size company have no idea what the mission of the company is. So you need to try to get that message across on posters in the bathrooms, um, on messages on their computer and in social media and in what you say to the press just at every possible opportunity. So social media is one part of that. And then you have the same thing when you're talking to clients. So when somebody like Tom Ewing does a very thoughtful piece um, in LinkedIn, that is part of the message that says System One Group is going to give you this level of thoughtfulness. It also is a sub-message, we're not that cheap. So don't bother yourself. Only come to us if you're looking for something extra. You'll see a lot of the stuff from Insights Consulting, the Belgium company, which again talks about some of the really exciting things they've done with clients. And one of them recently, I, I saw Tom was talking about, he had Tom DeRike, sorry, um, done a project with a transport company and he'd insisted that they all travel by bus for the few days before the debrief because most of them didn't travel by bus. Some had got drivers. They were so senior and he wanted them to do that. So when he came to make the presentation, people were going, oh yeah, I recognize that. Yes, I recognize that. Well, there's a, a level of chutzpah or arrogance if you as a brand are telling your senior stakeholder clients to do something. And so when you say that in social media, you are creating that expectation. Don't come to us if you're looking for a really cheap, quick service. 
because actually that's not the sort of business you are. And similarly, if that is the sort of business you are, then you will message that through social media. But nothing in social media should be unique. It should simply be part of your broader communication plan. Got it. Do you see it as a, are you, are you seeing it as an increased, I'm thinking now about the new entrants into market research, the, the new buyers. Um, are you seeing it playing an increasing role in their buying decision? So we're talking about brands buying research agencies or people, people buying agencies, right? Right, yeah. In this case, it'd be part of that $46 billion market research turnover piece. Most clients are not active in social media. So there is a section who will be very aware and they will be aware when for those situations where they have a different problem. So somebody comes along and says, we really want to do some form of implicit association testing. That's when they're going to say, well, yeah, I saw that nice presentation at the conference and these people have been talking, sentient decision making, have been talking about that in social media. I better give them a call. That, of course, is something that doesn't happen every year for that particular insight manager. They may not get any questions from their team that fall outside of their regular suppliers. So it is in use. It's, it's part of the communication strategy, but it's, it's not a major force for most people. You know, one of the things I've been like trying to wrestle with is I, I heard a podcast where Brian Halligan, the CEO, one of the founders and CEO of HubSpot was talking. He, he actually claimed that telesales is net negative for um, a company's brand. At, if you're, if you're at a, you know, selling into enterprises or, or B2B uh, was his, his point of view. And, there, and he gave a reason why, which of course all of us know, right? No, nobody likes that person on the other end of the phone. However, like on the other side of it is exactly what you're describing, which is, you know, you have this specific need in context of time and it isn't regular. How are you finding companies like building that brand so that they are top of mind when the buyer has um, the specific itch to scratch? It depends what you're selling, but my experience of telesales is that the companies that use it well do better than other companies. Now, that maybe isn't just because of telesales, because maybe they're doing lots of other things well too. But if you think about how telesales work, somebody rings you up and it's a complete nuisance. Somebody rings you up, it's a complete nuisance. Somebody in your company says, we, we've got to do a project with chatbots. And 20 minutes later, somebody rings you up and talks about chatbots. It's brilliant. So that telesales has an immense amount of throwaway. But if it, if it falls in at the right time, it's like fly fishing, then it's successful. And I think that is, is part of what is happening. It is different in different markets. So telesales is much less effective in Asia Pacific. Um, than it is in North America. But generally speaking, the research industry, I think, should be using more telesales in the, Mitch, in the mix. Europeans in particular are very squeamish. They think, oh, people don't want to receive those calls. Look at the companies, people um, like Matrix Consulting and so on, uh, Matrix Lab, who have done really well using telesales. 
as an important part of the process. Otherwise, you very, very rarely break out of whichever circle you're in. If you look at the people who've done the social media mapping, what you notice is that everybody's in groups and they're, they're in echo chambers and we all talk to each other. And if your marketing is going to break out of there, you have to do cold calling. Now that cold calling can be knocking on doors, it can be going up to people at, at conferences, but for a lot of clients, it has to be telephone. There isn't another method that we have today of cold calling. You can't email people you don't know. Um, you Geographically, it's too time consuming to knock on the door on the off chance they'll let you in. So cold call, tele, tele sales, cold calling is terrible, but better than all the other cold calling options. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Qualtrics is another example. Yes. I think they, they're rumored to have had, right, a phone room of over 400 people um, just dialing. And I know that I actually lost a, uh, one project to Qualtrics. And the reason given to me was they just keep calling me. So I feel like I have to use them. Yes. And which I thought was really interesting. It is. And there will be lots and lots of people who will not respond to those calls. But that's, it's still giving them a mechanism to break out into somewhere else. And generally speaking, this comes back to my point about other people are not like you. I could not be a telesalesperson. <laughs> but it's important for me to realize that there are people who can be. Right. That's funny. Yeah. There's uh, my previous chairman, Dennis Malmatinas, he got a telesale from Richard Branson. Um, he was travel. He was the CEO of Burger King Global, and um, they were reaching out. They had re reaching out to global CEOs to um, solicit utilization of Virgin Airlines. So it was a really interesting, like mm. <laughs> the billionaire is doing. Um, Cold calling. Anyway, on the there yeah. you go. There you go. Uh, last question. What is your personal motto? Have fun, keep learning, help people, and hopefully make some money along the way. My guest today has been Ray Pointer, SMR council member and founder of New MR. Thank you, Ray, so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Pleasure. Everyone else, if you found value in this, as I certainly did, I hope that you'll take the time to screenshot this episode, share it on social media. Your feedback, as always, helps other people like you find this content. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by HubUX. HubUX is a productivity tool for qualitative research. It creates a seamless workflow across your tools and team. Originally came up with the idea as I was listening to research professionals in both the quant and qual space complain about and, the, and articulate the pain, I guess more succinctly, around managing qualitative research. The one big problem with qualitative is it's synchronous in nature and it requires 100% of the attention of the respondent. This creates a big barrier and I believe a tremendous opportunity inside of the marketplace. So what we do is we take the tools that you use, we integrate them into a workflow so that ultimately you enter in your project details, that is who it is that you wanna to talk to and when you wanna to talk to them, whether it's a focus group in person or virtual or IDIs or ethnos, and we 
connect you to those right people in the times that you want to have those conversations or connections. Push button qualitative insights. Hub UX, if you have any questions, reach out to me directly. I would appreciate it. Jamin at hubux.com. Have a great rest of your day.